Last week I was in Mexico City for the Sabbath. Uh, Carol was there with me, as pointed out in the, the bulletin that you have there. And it was a wonderful experience that we had. It's something that we will treasure uh, throughout our lives. Uh, the warmth, the friendliness, the support, the prayers that are offered up, the, the hugs, the kisses. Uh, you get kissed many times there. And uh, it's uh, it just a wonderful experience. I remember there was this little girl, she was three years old, they, they had a uh, youth choir, and I think she was in that, but I can't remember for sure, but anyway, she's three years old and she was in her mother's arms, and she's kind of pointing at me, and she said, she said something to her mother, I asked her what she said, and, and her mother said, uh, why doesn't he speak in Spanish? So, uh, out of the mouth of babes. I'm learning, I'm trying, I do know how to say... Uh, Yo uh, quiero una botella de agua y cerveza negro modelo, and um, a few things like that. And some of you obviously know some Spanish, probably about as much as I do. But it was a wonderful experience, and we did have a very warm greeting, uh, the support shown uh, toward us, and it was, was truly inspiring. But the unity of spirit that we experienced in Mexico last week is not what we find in the world. Division is more the rule, and especially at this time. We are in a, an especially divided time in history. There have been other times, no doubt. Uh, this isn't totally unique, but in some respects it is because of the potential for disaster. The U.S. is badly divided. And it's difficult to see how the bridge can ever be gap, or the gap can ever be bridged again. I think we're at a place where we've passed the point of no return. Uh, we'd have to go back to the Civil War to see a time when the country was so divided. And it's taken decades for it to be brought back together, and still uh, we are suffering the effects of that time. There are protests and riots in the streets of France and have been now for months. Nearly every country in South America is erupting with protests. We don't get much news on that here, but Mr. Hernandez brought that out in one of our meetings that we had. I guess it was the Council of Elders in November. Brought out that it seems like every place in Central and South America is erupting in uh, protests from people that are sick and tired of the kind of government that they've had. We see street riots in Hong Kong, and they've been going on now for months. Doesn't seem like there's any end in sight there. Uh, the state of Israel cannot figure out how to form a government. It's badly divided. And then there's Brexit and the potential breakup of the United Kingdom. The Scottish National Party, the SNP, uh, we'd like to have another referendum on whether Scotland will be a part of the United Kingdom or if they can go their separate way. Uh, they could then, I guess, uh, go back into the, uh, the European Union, uh, which is, uh, will end here for them unless they change something down the road. But it looks like it's going to end at the end of this month, which is not that very far away. What is today, the 25th? So uh, by, by next week... Uh, we could have Brexit uh, a reality. Of course, Ireland is a special 
case because you have Northern Ireland, which would be a part of the United Kingdom, allied with France, as it were, and yet the Republic of Ireland, Southern Ireland, uh, is still in the European Union, or will be. And what do you do at the border there? That's been a, a major stumbling block all along. Even the royal family is fracturing, as Harry and, uh, was it uh, Megan, Marp, Megan, yes, uh, uh, want to live half their lives over on this side of the, uh, the pond, uh, I guess in Canada mostly, if not entirely, but uh, that's a, a fracture in the royal family there. There's a spirit power that is stirring up these kinds of divisions. We know that at the end of the age, that it says there's going to be violence, ethnic violence, ethnic, racial violence. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to talk about how in this country that racial disharmony uh, could bring a bloodbath in the streets of this country. And that is certainly a possibility. Uh, one has to wonder if something were to happen to our president or he were to be just thrown out of office, what kind of a reaction that would bring. And if he isn't, then one has to wonder what kind of reaction that's going to bring in the end. But there is a spirit behind all of this. And we must always be aware that that spirit is there and not allow that same spirit to destroy or to fracture the church of God, which he would love to do. He would love to get in with us and bring about a fracturing of the unity that we experience at this time. I spoke last week in Mexico City on preserving the unity in the faith. And that's what I'm going to speak on today. Unity must be more than a slogan. It's easy to talk about unity. It's another thing to maintain unity. And I say maintain because I think we do have unity overall. Are there any individuals or uh, people here and there that maybe have a problem with it? I don't think, I, I know that that's always going to be the case. But we have unity and we must maintain it. And that's not easy to do. It's something we must strive for and practice in thought and action every day of our lives. In Galatians, the third chapter, we have a passage that is very well known to all of us. I think it's uh, one of the most uh, common scriptures that we are aware of. Galatians 3, and I'll begin in verse 27. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And he's talking to a group where there were many Gentiles, perhaps predominantly Gentile. And he says, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we have to be careful of not taking that scripture beyond what is intended there. Uh, some people uh, want to take that scripture further than it should be, but when it says there's neither male nor female, are we saying that there are no differences between men and women? Uh, I think that would be stretching it quite a bit, wouldn't it? And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
How wonderful it is to be able to go to Mexico City or to the Philippines, to Manila, uh, to uh, someplace in Australia, someplace in Africa, uh, someplace in South America, wherever we go, and find that the church is unified. We have a set order of services. And not only is it in an outward sense a set order of services that is the same, we sing the same hymns. Uh, the words are somewhat different because of translation. I have to admit that I had a difficult time trying to read Spanish words in the hymn to keep up with it. It takes me a little bit longer to uh, kind of sound out those words, but nevertheless, uh, they were singing the same basic hymns as we are, the same meaning to the words, even though they're, they're different words, they're meaning the same thing. And there's the same spirit that is there, and the same love that we have for one another. It's a wonderful thing that we have there. But God tells us that unity is something we must strive to maintain. Notice over in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4 and verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We read that many times. And it's easy to read right over that, but notice that he says that we walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. God has called us to a very special calling. He's called us to be a part of the very family of God. And we are a family now, but not yet born into the family of God in a spirit sense, to be spirit beings, and to solve the problems that exist on this earth. And there are serious problems on this earth. One of the things that we had the opportunity of doing when we were in Mexico was going to the, the pyramids. I won't try to pronounce the proper name for it. Uh, they're, they're not the Egyptian pyramids. Uh, they're, they're different. They're not smooth stones up there, but you could actually walk up there. Although I, I would say that uh, the, uh, the steps would never pass muster in this country because somebody would stumble and sue, the, sue somebody. Uh, pretty treacherous going up. Uh, we went up the uh, Pyramid of the Sun. And we see the Pyramid of the Moon and the Pyramid of the Feathered Flying Serpent. Huge, huge area. And from a, uh, a perspective of geometry, set out in a geometrical, uh, mostly squares, but set out beautif very beautifully, they brought stones all the way from Peru to build these pyramids. But we're talking about just a, a massive area. I don't know, a couple of miles long or whatever it is altogether. There were, they don't know, 100 to 200,000 people that lived in the city there at one time. And the stones are not big stones as you see in Israel with the Temple Mount. They're, they're small stones, about like this. Something you pick up with one hand with mortar around them. And then you have, in the mortar, you have little black stones all the way around. And the number of those little black stones it would take to uh, fill in the mortar or just to decorate the mortar must have been in the hundreds of thousands when you look at the whole size of this place. How long would it have taken them to build these pyramids? 
Very clearly an intelligent people. But they practiced human sacrifice. Little children, if they have little two little crowns as opposed to one, they'd sacrifice those. And they'd sacrifice their enemies. And they had one, uh, we went to the Anthropology Museum. And there they had, I think it was a, a leopard or something, I can't remember now, but it had a hollow center there where they would throw the hearts of their victims. There was another big stone bowl about this big and about yay deep where they would throw the hearts of their victims. And the Catholic Church has turned it into, or turned it into, they don't use it now for that, uh, for holy water to baptize little children. I couldn't quite get all the details, but the Lady of Guadalupe, uh, that's patron saint there of Mexico, and her saintess, however they say it, uh, there, there's a connection between her name and these uh, pagan individuals and their, their worship at the time. It's amazing how you see things like that. It's a very different world than the world of love and harmony that we have. When I think about all the different ethnic groups that we have, the different languages we have, God has given us a great deal of unity. But we must walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We've been called to solve these problems that we have in society, to take care of the problems, to bring unity to the world. But we must walk worthy of that calling. It's a very special calling God has given to us. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing, as I've often said, putting up with one another in love. My wife was listening to a sermon by uh, Mr. Smith this morning. And I was doing something else, but I walked through and I, I just heard a little bit of it. And he was talking about how people are, are complex. You, you probably heard that sermon. I haven't heard it. I must have been out of town, but I want to go back and listen to it. As he pointed out, we, we tend to want to put everybody in a box. This is a good guy. That's a bad guy. This is a converted person. That person's unconverted. We, we, we can tend to put people into little uh, boxes. And it's never that simple. There are people that have good qualities and people have bad qualities. I suppose that even the worst of people had some good qualities. But how much more you and me, that we ought to be able to, instead of boxing somebody in a corner, that we could actually look and say, well, you know, there are things that I don't like about that person's personality, but here are the good things, and I love these things. And I'm going to focus on the positive as opposed to the negative. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice he says endeavoring. That means effort has to be put into it. We don't have unity without effort. There's one body and one spirit, as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we saw a gift of Christ. This doesn't mean the total gifts that they have, but in the special music today, Rebecca and, and Chris, one singing, one playing the piano. A very special gifts. Not all of us can do that. 
I've taken piano lessons. I can read music a little bit, but I can tell you, I can't do that. Now, maybe if I had worked at it longer, maybe if I hadn't rebelled so much against it uh, with growing up, then uh, maybe I would have done better. But nevertheless, that's a gift that they have developed, and they are giving to us in that special way. The sermonette, the song leading, people have different gifts. We are not all the same. What a wonderful thing it is that we're not all the same. But he's given us gifts according to God's grace and his mercy and the measure that he's given. To have unity, we must know our enemy. We must recognize that there is an enemy out there, and he is trying to divide us. He really is. He's dividing the world, and we've always seen this in the church. What happens to the world, it is reflected in the church in various ways. And so we must assume that that enemy is out there to divide you and me in one way or another. And he'll find our weak point at some point in time if we allow him to do so. In John, the eighth chapter, we see a little bit about the enemy that we face. John 8, verse 44, another very familiar scripture where Jesus said to those that had confronted him, he said, You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He is going to spread lies. Some of those lies will come from the outside. Some will come from the inside, maybe intentionally and maybe unintentionally, but the end result can nevertheless be the same. We also read another very familiar scripture in Revelation, the 12th chapter. Not only is he a liar, but in Revelation 12, we see that the devil, Satan, is the accuser of the brethren. Verse 9, Revelation 12:9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Notice he's a great deceiver. And if we think we can't be deceived, we're naive. We can be deceived. We have been deceived. Every one of us in one way or another. I certainly grew up being deceived about who God was and what he had in mind for us. But we can be deceived in other ways. Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. But nevertheless, he's been in heaven or had access, he's actually been down on this earth, but from what we see in Job and elsewhere, he's had access from time to time to God. And he accuses you and me before our God, our Creator. And he doesn't receive those accusations. Unless there's some truth to them, he may have to deal with us, as he dealt with Uzzah, as brought out in the uh, sermonette. But here is one that focuses on the negative. 
He has all of us in one box. Bad guys. Bad ladies. Bad people. Destroy. Kill. Divide. Conquer. That's the box that the devil has us in. He sees us as the enemy. Well, he sees all mankind as the enemy, but especially the people of God. I'd like to uh, recommend a couple telecasts that you can watch. You know, a lot of people have come into the church, a lot of you, or at least I say a lot, some of you, obviously, in more recent years. And when we go on the Internet and we look at sermons, we sometimes look at the latest ones, but you might go back a ways. There's a, a sermon on Can Satan Deceive You by Mr. Ames, December 2004. It's right there on our website, December 2004 by Mr. Ames, on Can Satan Deceive You. might go back all the way back there because that's one that you probably haven't heard recently, and some of you never. There's also one again by Mr. Ames, on seven satanic deceptions. Seven satanic deceptions. Do us well to know what those deceptions are. That's September 17th, 2009. Again, over ten years. More than ten years ago that was given. And there are numerous other ones on Satan. Dr. Meredith, Mr. Smith have programs on Satan. There are numerous articles on the subject. And so Satan uses lies, accusations, to divide and to conquer. We live in the disinformation age. We speak of the information age, but it's an age of disinformation. We've always had that problem in the world. It's always been a disinformation world in many respects. I remember a couple decades ago, I don't remember the, the candidate, but there were a number of dirty tricks that were coming out, things that candidates for president or for some other office were using. And I remember one of the things that was brought out was that uh, this particular campaign hired people and gave them the money to ride the subway all day long in New York. And they would get on and they would just ride and they'd get paid for doing this. And their role in the campaign was to spread rumors about the other guy. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? And that was their goal. That was their role. And if we think that this is something new, we're, we're you know, we're, we're very much mistaken. It's always been that way. But the problem is that now we have new and more... Uh, greater means of spreading lies through social media and the Internet. There's an article here from the New York Times, and the title, this is uh, December the 16th of 2019, so just a little over a month past. It says, campaigns aren't ready for political fakery surge. It says, uh, in 2018... Lisa Kaplan assembled a small team inside the re-election campaign for Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine, wary of how um, uh, this was set up there. Well, she says Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. 
So uh, how to stop that? You know, we, 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 we're afraid of the Russians all the time. You know, anybody that thinks that the Russians just started interfering in our campaigns, you know, in 2016, does anybody really believe that, that that's the first time they started interfering in our campaigns? Well, guess what? We've been interfering in campaigns all over this world ourselves. If anybody thinks the United States hasn't been involved in this sort of thing, you're really naive. And I don't think most of us are that naive, but the way it's presented in the press is, oh, we've got something brand new. The Russians are out there. They've been there a long time. They've been infiltrating our universities, our media, uh, our campaigns. It's always been there. But with social media, the, the power of social media is something that needs to be aware of. And that this lady is saying that she doesn't see any of the candidates out there assembling teams to shoot down these false reports that are surely going to come. Being the New York Times, it's written from a particular angle. I guess that's okay. Every, everybody has a slant. As long as you know what that slant is, you can read through things. You know, even we have a slant. We just try to have the, the right slant, God's slant on things. Everything's slanted one way or the other. The question is whether it's a correct, honest, truthful slant or one that is uh, skewed in some way. This is the devil who is out there, and he is trying to infiltrate every facet of society. Chat rooms and blogs on the Internet are perfect for promoting personal opinions. And they're out there promoting these various ideas. With the, the mainstream media, they've taken over in many ways. It's a pro-LGBT media, pro-abortion, pro-cannabis, uh, pro-anti-religion, and pro-silencing of anyone who has a different opinion. I was watching a program a couple weeks ago, uh, Kurt Schilling. Uh, if you don't follow baseball, you don't know who he is, but uh, he was being interviewed. He, um, I, I think he, he won something like 11 out of 12 games, World Series games, um, on three different teams. I, the facts may not be exactly right, but uh, the record that this man has, he'd be a sure thing for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, the question is, why isn't he there yet? He fell short again in recent voting because he is a conservative. True. And it's amazing that there's that kind of animosity. Whether you agree with conservatism or not, that's not the issue. It is that there's a one-sided hypocritical approach by most of the people in the media, about 88% of them on the other side of the spectrum, including sports writers. It's quite remarkable. 
that our world is being influenced in this way. Again, you can take whatever side you want, but should we keep somebody from the Hall of Fame because of their politics? Or should they be there because of their, their ability on the field, which is what baseball is all about? We live in an age where the silencing of ideas, the promoting of ideas, is the spirit of our age. This is, again, nothing new if you go back to Acts 17. Acts 17, we see here that there was a group of people who uh, would fit in very well today with the Internet. Verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners, somehow we, we read over that part. It wasn't just those from Athens, but foreigners as well that were drawn to Mars Hill, who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sounds like the Internet, doesn't it? Always somebody out there telling or saying something new. The Internet is an incredible thing. I mean, it, it's, it's, an, it's got positives and negatives. But that's what we see there, somebody wanting to tell something new. Notice over in Isaiah, the 30th chapter. Isaiah 30. And we'll begin in verse 8. Again, a very familiar scripture to us. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and noted on a scroll that for time to come, forever and ever. So write this down as a witness for a time to come. Now, we could look at this from the perspective that it's talking about the people then, and so let's make a record that they were like that. But it also has very clearly the sense that this is for the time to come of people at, at a, a later time, because when you read the, the entirety of the, the passage, the chapter, and so forth, you see that there is an end-time context to it. In fact, the same chapter down in uh, uh, verse 21 uh, uh, is, Your ears shall hear a word behind you, uh, saying, This is the way, walk in it. We use that at the, the Feast of Tabernacles almost every year that's brought out there. But that's going to be our role, to, to be able to be a, a king or a priest and to guide people in the right way when they get too far off track. Uh, we're not going to be there and correct them every little mistake they make. But when you see somebody that's going to make some huge mistake, especially if it applies or affects somebody else, then we're going to be there. So this whole chapter is talking not just about the people back then, but the time to come. That this is a rebellious people lying children. Do we see any of that today? Politics. Everything about it is based on lies. It, it, you know, the, the idea, I don't care if you're on the right or you're the left, you tell people what they want to hear, and then you do what you're going to do. He says, Who say to the seers, Do not see. And to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us right things. So he's talking there about the churches, and they're saying to the, the prophets, the seers, the leaders, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. 
Now, do we see that in the religions today? Not only are the, the, the religions, the so-called Christian religions, off base on so many doctrines, but now many of them are promoting LGBT and saying that, uh, oh, the, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. Well, if any of our young people have any doubts about that, go back and read Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans, the first chapter, beginning at about verse uh, 18 on through verse 32. Those are for starters. Or you could go all the way back to Genesis, the 19th chapter, and see what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah and why he, he did so. And yet there are churches, there are ministers out there who say, oh, the Bible doesn't condemn that. What are these people smoking? Uh, sadly, they're probably sober. They just have an agenda. They want to fit in or they want to placate or they're, they, they believe that it's all okay. I was shocked. I have to say, I think I mentioned it before. One time I was out in Newfoundland and had a tomorrow's little presentation and the fellow invited me over to his house the next day for lunch. Well, he didn't say lunch. He just invited me over there. So I went over there and found out he was a minister of the uh, was the United uh, Church of Canada. Not, not the United Church of God, but the United Church of Canada. And he asked me about that subject of homosexuality and I explained, well, you know, the, you know what the Bible says. And then he went on to say that, well, here's how he looked at it. He had a different view. I'd always heard of ministers uh, saying these things, or maybe you see them on television in the writing, but when you meet, meet somebody face-to-face, -face, nice person. His wife did, uh, she, she was not interested, but she fixed uh, lunch or dinner, whatever it was, kind of late uh, lunch. And um, so I tried to be nice, and, you know, I mean, you're eating their food, you don't want to be insulting them. Uh, I suppose that, uh, you, you, you know, you, sometimes there's a, a point of wisdom. It was not going to change anything. No reason to get ugly about it. But he was wrong. And this is much of the religious world here. Let's go over to 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. 1 Timothy 4. This is the world in which we live, and this is what's happening in our world. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, the latter times, that's where we are today, some will depart from the faith. So there will be people who literally depart from the faith, taking heed or giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then it gives us, Two of those doctrines of demons, verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now this passage is used in two different directions. There are those that say that, well, it tells us that everything is good and uh, is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. That's in verse 5. So if that's the case, then we should be able to eat anything. Well, tell the people in China right now that it's a good idea to eat just anything. God knew what he was talking about when he gave us these laws. 
But on the other hand, we have to recognize there's the other side of the coin of people saying that we should abstain from foods which God did create to be received. We've had sermonettes on this, and I don't want to go into too much detail. But notice verse 5, it says, whatever it is, it's been sanctified by the word of God and prayer. They want to say, well, just pray over it, it's okay. But it, notice it says it's sanctified, it's set apart by the word of God and prayer. By the word of God, it's set apart. Go back to Leviticus 11. You have the laws of clean and unclean meats, and it says toward the end there, he says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We have that quote in the New Testament, but especially uh, where, where it quotes from, that's one of the, the few places in the Old Testament where it tells us to be holy. And it's very clearly tied in with clean and unclean meats. That's part of God's law. We all know that from time to time we probably get something in our food that we don't know about. But when we set out to, do, to, to violate the law of God, there is a consequence for it. It's not always going to kill us right now. But when you look at Ebola, when you look at SARS, when you look at what's happening in China right now, it's all a result of the violation of God's laws of clean and unclean meats. One of the things we notice here, we have people telling us we must abstain from foods which God created, which He did create to be received. And what is the movement in the world today? Veganism. We shouldn't eat meat. We shouldn't eat anything that comes from an animal. That's cruel. And besides, raising animals for food are destroying the earth. All this flatulence from the cows is going to destroy the, the, the earth, cause global warming. Interesting, when we were in Mexico City, actually at the pyramids, we learned that th there were about three or four different uh, civilizations that came along there. One of them was destroyed by what? Climate change. The climate changed. I guess the crops didn't grow, and that was destroyed. It was as though God said, enough is enough. Now, we didn't have the problem. I mean, we, didn't, you know, we had cows then. We have cows now. We had buffalo roaming all over the, this continent uh, back at, at that time by the, the millions. But there was something, something that God said, enough is enough. Then another civilization rises up, and 400 conquistadors come from Spain and destroy that civilization. And we say, that's awful bad, that's terrible. When you look at what they're doing, when you look at, uh, they, they, they actually have statues showing uh, their, their goddess with uh, uh, snakes and hearts of the victims as part of the skirt. It's quite remarkable. Very intelligent people, but deceived by the devil. Terribly deceived by the devil. You know, the, the world, Satan, Satan gets us going in a certain direction, and then people get caught up in it, and they think that this is better than what God has in mind. People promote worldly ideas 
over the scriptures. We even have a movement now among some celebrities telling us that we should not have children to save the planet. That'll save the planet by you not having children. And so we have a generation of young people growing up thinking, oh, I shouldn't have children because I'm, I'm against the planet. Do we not recognize that this is part of Satan's overall purpose and plan, that he is causing all kinds of havoc with the ideas that people have? There are four actions that bring about unity. There are probably more, but I want to give you four actions in the remainder of this sermon that help us to have uni unity. And the first one is a right understanding of the Word of God. We must have a right understanding of the Word of God. In other words, that should be our guide, not what this celebrity says or that celebrity says or what the news media tries to promote or this study or that study. So much of this stuff, it's hard to believe anything anymore because these studies are promoted by people who have this in mind. Oftentimes they have a certain set thing that they want to promote so they have a study. Jimmy Riggett in such a way that it comes out to say, well, this is bad, or you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't do that. I mean, look at um, uh, coffee just in the last 20 years. It's terrible for you. No, it's good for you. No, it's terrible for you. Now, if you drink some, you know, a couple cups, you live longer. Who knows? Mr. Armstrong promoted balance in all things. And so we see all these varying studies to promote this idea or that idea. And unless you know who's actually doing the study, it's hard to tell what the real truth is. Even the people who are doing it may not even know what the truth is. Dr. Meredith wrote an interesting article, Satan's Alternative Universe. Might want to review that July, August 2016 in Tomorrow's World. Satan's Alternative Universe. He recognized that. He wanted to write a booklet on the subject. Satan's Alternative Universe, or something similar to that title Alternate Universe, Alternate Reality. It's interesting you actually hear that term alternate reality occasionally uh, these days. I wrote an article on Tame the Social Media Monster. That was in uh, March and April 2018. I think it would do us all well to, to really think about social media and what we do. But we need to have a right understanding of the Word of God. We have people out here who are advocates for gun rights or the Constitution or whatever it may be. Well, frankly, folks, the Constitution is not the Word of God. It's a wonderful document. A document. We, we appreciate much of it. But the Second Amendment is not a part of the Ten Commandments. And people get caught up in this stuff, the spirit of this age. And we have to have a right understanding of the Word of God. In Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, and verse 1, he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now, this is 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Paul was telling 
Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convict, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. We actually see that in our world today. And some of these uh, churches that call themselves churches of God have some pretty bizarre doctrines and ideas. And we have people who just love to have it that way. Coming up with strange and bizarre doctrines and different doctrines and watering down true doctrines. It says they turn their ears away from the truth and they're turned to fables. And they, they love to have it so. They have itching ears. They want to hear something new, something different, not what we've taught historically. A right understanding of the Word of God is so important. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, we are admonished to be diligent. Of course, Paul talking to Timothy, but it applies to us as well. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the sermonette we had today was talking about really studying the word of God and, and knowing what it says. And, and when we don't study it carefully, then problems can occur. I'm reminded of in light of this scripture, it says we're to rightly divide the word truth, and we could go over to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, and verse 15, where this verse has been used to say that we should almost have an answer for every, every question that could, could come up. It says, but sanctify, this is 1 Peter 3:15 Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so oftentimes this is taken and sometimes even preached by some of our younger ministers to say that well we we need to be able to have a defense for everything that comes up. But that's not what the scripture says. It says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, not for every question that could arise. Well, that's good if we have, because the previous scripture says we need to rightly divide the word of truth. But it says, to get to uh, one, everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the Apostle Paul, when he was on trial for his life, had to do exactly that. He didn't have to explain clean and unclean meats. We should be able to, of course. He didn't have to explain first, second, and third tithe. We should be able to. He didn't have to explain a lot of things, but he had to give a reason for the hope that was in him. This is why I'm here. This is why I believe what I do. And Paul was able to talk about the resurrection that had the hope of the resurrection. And why is it strange that someone should be raised from the dead. And King Agrippa, this didn't happen in a corner. He was able to give an explanation for the hope 
a defense for why he believed what he did, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we need to be able to do so with meekness and fear. And when you read Paul's defense, he was very respectful, but he gave a strong defense of what he did. Uh, if you haven't heard the explanation on that more fully, uh, I gave a sermon, The Hope of the Resurrection. Uh, that was back in April, four, April the 14th of 2017. You might want to review that uh, from about 40 minutes into it. It talks about this verse and the hope that is in us and how Paul uh, gave that kind of a defense. So the first thing is we need to know the Word of God. We need to rightly divide the Word of truth. We need to know why we're here. Secondarily, unity requires leadership. Unity requires leadership. I think we're all familiar with Judges, the 17th chapter, verse 6. Actually, probably Judges 21. Let's just go there to Judges 21. It's also mentioned very similarly in the 17th chapter, verse 6. But let's go to Judges 21. It's really easy to find. It's the last verse in the book of Judges. And it's really a summation of the most bloody time in Israel's history there, one of the most bloody times. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did his own thing. And part of the reason for that was that there was no king. There was no central strong authority in the nation. So unity, where we're all together, does require leadership. And whether that's in the home, a strong leader, hopefully a husband who is there, a father for the children, hopefully, that is there. And if not, then strong leader in the wife, or the uh, not the wife, I guess, in, in that particular case, the mother. To have unity, you have to have strong leadership. You can't run the home as a democracy where everybody does his own thing and everybody votes on every detail. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God gives us loving authority, not only in the home, and it is God who puts the leadership in the home and defines it, but also God gives us leadership in the church, Ephesians 4. Go back to Ephesians 4 once again. We don't want to beat on this point in the wrong way, but Ephesians 4 tells us that in order to have unity, we have to have right government. We have to have leadership. Note that we started in verse 1 earlier, and in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. And he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, so on and so forth. Uh, and then down in verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, why some Church of God organizations refuse to accept that there is rank in the ministry. I don't know, because they can't get around this scripture. Well, it's just functions. But very clearly, 
We read of apostles, we read evangelists, we read of deacons and various other ones, and they have certain levels of responsibility. He gave, uh, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, for the building up of the body of Christ. Not to, to control people in a wrong way, but to build the church in a very positive way. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, to bring forth the true knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And notice it's not the statue, as sometimes I hear read, but it's the stature, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love or out of love. We may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's the ultimate purpose, is love, outgoing concern. We have other scriptures that tell us that in leadership, whether it be in the home, and I bring that out in the home because sometimes we have men who put upon themselves greater authority than they really have or they exercise authority in a wrong way. And instead of authority to serve in the family, it's just my way or the highway. And sometimes we have to talk to our ministers because sometimes they may have a more militaristic approach, and that's not the right approach. But here in First Peter, the fifth chapter, it, it tempers how we exercise uh, government. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. It says, The elders who are among you I exhort. Now this is Peter exhorting the elders amongst them. He had authority over them. He says, I exhort you. I am a fellow elder. We're on the same team here. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. The be it, not the beatific vision, the... Uh, um, what is it? The uh, the the uh, it was on the, the transfiguration. Yeah, there's a difference between the transfiguration and the beatific vision. Uh, the, the transfiguration. He was a witness there of, of the glory of Christ. And he says, "Shepherd the flock of God." You know, if there's one thing about a shepherd, it is his love for the for the sheep cares for the sheep. He looks over them. He, he examines them to make sure that they're not sick or that there's some problem, that they're not injured in some way. He makes sure that they have the right diet, the right food. A shepherd is, is a wonderful um, word to use for those of us who are in the ministry. And again, this applies to the, the husband in the family, or, or, or the mother, for that matter, if she is the, the one that is in charge in a certain time and a way. You know, sometimes you see mothers just yelling at their kids all the time. 
and the kids can't do anything right. They have to be corrected the right time and for the right things. But let's, let's have the shepherd's approach toward the sheep, whatever our position may be. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Notice, among us. Not that we're over that way, and although he says serving as overseers, yes, we are overseeing. But he says it's among us. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. So we shouldn't lord it over others. But being examples to the flock, that's the key, to be the example to the flock. But now there are other things that have to be done. There has to be correction, as we read there in First uh, Timothy. Uh, it says, uh, as being Lord, not being lords over them and trusted those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So we see that right leadership has to be there. Unity as a result of knowing what the Word of God is, rightly dividing the Word of God. It also requires leadership. That's number two. Number three, unity exists when people voluntarily submit to leadership. Now, leadership is something that has to be, be given. We have to lead as a shepherd leads the, the flock. But the flock has to voluntarily follow, and sheep usually will. But you always have those that go astray for whatever reason. Uh, notice back in Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, I was going to give this a little bit earlier, but I, I realized this is the right place to put it, because we had Moses was truly a great leader over the, the, the children of Israel. But notice what he says in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 8. He says, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, that might seem to contradict the fact that unity is a result of, of leadership, right leadership. But one can lead, but others must voluntarily follow. We can't make people follow. People have to volunteer to follow. And as we know, the children of Israel were an unruly flock at times. They were a very unruly flock. And they were ready to stone Moses, their shepherd, because he was the one leading that flock at that time. It was an awfully big flock. I can only imagine what it must have been like with all those unconverted people. You know, the, the church of God is, is really easy um, compared to what Moses had to go through, at least at the moment. Uh, whether it will always be that way, we don't know. But uh, from my perspective, we, we see a great deal of support, a great deal of uh, desire to do what is right on the part of God's people. But when he says there in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter in verse 10, we must all speak the same thing. Now that's something that you and I must do. We, we must all do that. Nobody can force us to speak the same thing. We can always say to someone, look, you can't stay here and speak these things. But that's something that we must do. Second Thessalonians 2, 
And verse 15, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. It's an admonition to the brethren there to stand fast and hold the traditions. That is a part that, that each one of us must play. And so the traditions have been laid down, so to speak, for us, which are based on God's laws. And there are some things that there's not a law that says one way or the other, like starting services at a particular time and, you know, uh, three hymns and opening prayer and sermonette and announcements and so, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. That, that's a tradition uh, somewhat based on examples in the Old Testament where they had services all morning long uh, in, in some cases. But basically it's a tradition. God doesn't tell us exactly how to hold services. So he says, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. In Titus, the first chapter, verses 9 through 11, it speaks of holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Bring up leaders, ordaining people who will hold fast to the faithful word as they have been taught, not improvising their own ideas and so forth. I remember after the breakup of Worldwide, we had a number of individuals who were elders and cities where they, they had to suddenly uh, take on the role of the, the pastor. Maybe they weren't pastor in name, but they were the ones that were there every week. And I remember we had one fellow that uh, he, uh, he always thought that the earth was only, the whole universe was only 6,000 years of age. It's not what the church has taught, but that's what he thought, and so he began to promote that idea. He also thought it was wrong to eat mushrooms. Now, I guess if you want to eat mushrooms, it's, it's up to you or not to do so. I remember as a kid, I didn't like them, and they did like them, and they didn't like them. Now I like them. Uh, but uh, people have different ideas on that, but you don't impose that upon the whole congregation. But we had people like that, that suddenly they had a little bit of authority, and then all their ideas suddenly came out from underneath the rocks. Go back to Ephesians. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, let, let's, yeah, let's go to the, the fourth point. The third point was unity exists when people voluntarily submit to leadership. So you have to have leadership. You have to know what the Word of God says. But you also have to have a voluntary submission. And when we have hands laid upon us at baptism or at ordination, we are, in that sense, voluntarily submitting to an authority over us as it comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ, through His servants, on down to the family, the husband being the head of the wife and the children and so forth, all the way down through things. We are voluntarily submitting to God's form of government, and hopefully it is a loving government. But unity thrives in an atmosphere of humility. And this kind of goes along with a voluntary submission, but it has to be unity. So let's go over to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And verse 2, remember we started out there, and he says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. In other words, in order to have the unity of the faith that he speaks of in the next verse, there has to be humility. There has to be humility on the part of each of us. Remember what John said, John the Baptist, you can look it up. Uh, John, the third chapter, verses 26 to 30. His disciples came to him and he said, 
And they said, we, we see this one that you saw on the other side of the river there, Christ, in other words. And, and he's baptizing and more people are going to him. And John reminded them of what he said earlier, that he must increase, but I must decrease. Throughout life, there are going to be times when we are put in a position, and then somebody may be put over us in that position, or we may have to take a step backward. It could be on the job, where maybe you're the one that has to train the boss's son, and you know more than the boss's son. Reminds me of a very dear friend of mine many years ago. He was in that exact situation. And he had not gone to college or university. The boss's son had. And he knew more than the boss's son in certain things. But he learned over a period of time that without that university education, he didn't have the math skills to be able to excel past a certain point. And he ended up going back to college when he was, I don't know, late 30s or whatever it was, to get that education that he needed because he could go so far but the boss's son who had gone off to university yes he had learned some of the basics and be trained there but then he could keep on going whereas the other fellow couldn't you know there's a time when we had and I know that it was a difficult trial for this this fellow but he did learn there's a time we have to step back we have to say okay this the boss's son he's he's the boss so he can put his son over me or sometimes in the church we get to be a certain age and we have to step back and let somebody else do something I had to step back from uh, being over the uh, the summer camps somewhat voluntary but uh, realized that that I needed to step away from that when you're, you're hoping it's over before it starts it's a good time to step back <laughs> because after a while the liability factor gets to you you haven't had any disasters and you really hope there will be no disasters and you realize there are a lot of dangers a lot of things can go wrong and it works at you over a period of time and when I stepped back from that I knew that the one of the ones that took over afterward not do, would not do it my way I knew that now does that mean that I can sit back and say, well, I like the way they're doing things uh, all the time. I think it would be dishonest if I said that. Uh, you know, Mr. McNair was there, and then Mr. Munson, and, and next one. And do I, are they doing it exactly as I did it? I don't think so. But we have to have the humility to recognize that our way is not always the only way to do something. We, we, we maybe have a better way, but maybe they have something else that is better. Maybe you don't put it in a box and say, well, that's all bad because I don't like the way this person is doing something. And sometimes in the ministry, we have to take a step back. We have elders that are in some areas, and then we send in a younger man who has more energy and can work full time, and then somebody has to step back. It's not easy. But in order to have unity, we have to have humility. This world is not 
unified except against God. It is unified against God. They may do it a thousand different ways, but the end result is it's against God. But the people of God must be unified with God. And that takes effort. We have to know the Word of God. We have to have leadership. We have to submit to that leadership. And we must have humility. Satan is doing everything he can to divide you and me. He would love to do it. Just because he hasn't been able to do it yet doesn't mean that we can relax and say, oh, we're okay. No, he can divide us if we allow him. So it's up to us, with the help of God, to preserve unity in the faith.